I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk. Discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. probably know her name, but you might not know her story. I certainly didn't. Jo Malone is one of the biggest names in fragrance, and it all started at her kitchen table. By the time she was in her 20s, Jo was running her own skincare and cosmetics business, which eventually grew to include bath oils, scented candles and fragrances under the brand Jo Malone London. She sold it to Estee Lauder in 1999, yet her passion and drive for scent didn't end there. She launched her new company, Jo Loves, in 2011 for which she creates all kinds of brilliant scents, from Thai lime to white rose and lemon leaves. But her life story has not been without adversity. Um, but when we spoke earlier today, I started off by asking her uh, what I've asked you today, what her favourite smell is. Oh, I love citrus. And um, orange blossom and citrus are my two favourite notes in the whole world. And they're like my two best friends. So I love pomelo, grapefruit, limes, and then Orange Blossom, Neroli, Petticam, all of those. And you have apparently um, a, a bit of a superpower when it comes to scent, <laughs> synesthesia. Um, can you explain to our listeners and indeed to me uh, what it is and, and whether it's useful or not? Well, it's, it, it, I thought everybody could smell like I did. Because I, from a young child, I was able to smell if the dog was sick, smell if it was going to rain, all kinds of yeah, kind of different things. But as, as I got older and um, after going through a medical kind of condition and having my brain scanned, they said to me, your hippocampus is really large, Joe." And I said, oh, thank you very much. I didn't <laughs> have, have any idea what that meant. Um, but it does mean that the creative sort of um, primeval part of your brain, which animals rely on the sense of smell. And I have something so that when I see color, and some textures and music, I smell fragrance. It's the first sense. So it's not just in my imagination. I physically smell red or I physically smell gold or uh, a piece of jazz music will be this wonderful kind of mocha 
amber, crystallized amber smell for me. And so I translate everything back into the sense of smell very naturally. That's extraordinary, but doesn't it make uh, your job, as it were, um, more of an assault than than a sensory experience? Because uh, if you're smelling, I mean, things, uh, I imagine that also scents are very, very strong for you. Um, no, because I've grown up with it. It's the most natural thing in the world for me. And actually, a time in my life when I did lose my sense of smell, I lost my identity as well. So... I mean, I just love creating and I love the sense of smell. I love the stories that it brings to me. So I find it's like a companion. It's like my best friend. So, no, I don't. I, there's certain notes I don't like. I don't like sticky vanilla at all. And and vanilla reminds me of a really irritating person. And I find myself getting irritated if I smell it as well. I don't want to be around it. So, you know, there's the positive and negatives um, of everything in life. But uh, the majority of the time, I, I enjoy the creation and the, and the smelling of ingredients. What about human beings? I don't have uh, your condition, but I do have a thing where if people don't smell right, and I don't mean, you know, BO or whatever else we might be experiencing, particularly during the recent heat wave, uh, if they don't smell right, then I can't really be friends with them. Do you know, I've never, ha- I've never had that. I mean, unless they were covered from head to foot in vanilla, in which case I would probably walk in the opposite direction. No, I don't. I don't like bad smells, but like anybody, you know, anybody else. I do remember once getting on a plane and the man next to me really did smell. And I just knew I couldn't sit in the seat. Uh, I mean, all the way. It was a night flight. And um, so I did ask to be moved. And I've only ever done that once. But no, I don't. I try really hard not to judge. And if somebody enjoys a fragrance that I don't like, it's their choice. You know, I'm not going to be judgmental. Um, I love the smell of animals like horses and dogs. So I kind of love that, that you know, nature knows the best dose kind of, kind of notes. You know, I love that, the leather of a horse's saddle or, you know, a dog after it's had a lovely walk in the country. And you, it smells like crushed digestive biscuits behind its ears. Well, and mine smell so of fox I, poo. Well, no, no, no. Obviously, when when a dog rolls in fox poo, it's uh, it's not a pleasant experience. And my dog definitely has done that, and comes in and smells for days. So, yeah. You have a son. Did he go through a lynx Africa phase? I wonder. <laughs> Did he what? Did he go through a lynx Africa phase? <laughs> no, he no, he didn't actually. But he really loves. He loves all those kind of like Middle Eastern like ouds and. Um, you know, and his bedroom sometimes smells like a little souk with all Indian music. I mean, Middle Eastern music coming out and the smell of ebony woods and ambers all upstairs. But he I kind of love it that the fragrance that you love becomes part of your character. And when you when you smell that fragrance again, it reminds you of the person and in the place where you first smelt it on them. And I think that's a really happy kind of thought. Absolutely. I, I kind of like the idea of sticking to one perfume so that there's a, a smell that's synonymous with you. I'm not a person yeah. who goes through the airport and gets sprayed with 15 different bottles. I like to stick to the to, to the one thing. Um, I don't know where to start with you, Joe, because there's so much I want to talk to you about. You've already touched on some of the things. You've, you've, you've touched on illness. You've touched on losing your sense of smell. But I guess we probably need to start at, at the beginning uh, because you also had the most incredibly fascinating childhood and I don't know how we're going to get through all of it in the 20-25 minutes that we've got so maybe you could just start by telling me about your 
parents um, yeah. and, and why you were sort of fast forwarded into adulthood um, mm. as a result of these two uh, colourful but perhaps not um, the most ideal in some other ways uh, parents. Is that fair to say? Um, it was an unconventional childhood, but you know what? It was happy. Mm. I was I, I kind of a happy person, no matter kind of what life throws at you. But, um, you know, you you can never run away from who you are. And I believe nothing is wasted in life. You just got to find a way of using it. So I came from I grew up on a council estate. Um, and it's so funny when I go around the world now sharing the story, people, when they, the minute they hear the word estate, they connect it with Downton Abbey. And it, <laughs> I couldn't have been farther from Downton Abbey in, in a million years. It was a two up, two down. My dad was a brilliant, creative person. He was a, he was an artist. He was also a member of the magic circle and he also was a huge gambler. So that he was this very, very good looking man. He looked like Clark Gable. And um, although we lived on a council estate, he would wear these silk Charvet shirts and beautiful Chesterfield suits. Um, and I adored my father. And my mum was a really, really hardworking matriarchal figure in our family. So she uh, she worked for Revlon. She was a manicurist. And then she went to work for a woman called the Countess Lobati with skincare. So my upbringing was very, very eclectic. On a Saturdays, I would go to the market with my stepfather to sell his paintings. And as I walked out the door, my mum would say, Joe, if you don't sell a painting, there is no money and there's no food in the fridge. So I was only 11. I was 11 years old and that responsibility was on my shoulders. And for me, it felt I, I was the responsible one. So we would get to the market and I would try and sell a painting when he was parking the car. And I would pocket the money in the back of my pocket and give it to my mum when we got home. Um, I was also the Debbie McGee, the magician's assistant. So I would <laughs> go with him. And I, I was in charge of the rabbits and the doves. And I had a little pet dove called Suki, um, who she I just adored her. And she sat on my shoulder the whole time and cooed in my ear. So I knew how all the magic tricks worked. And then on a Sunday, if he'd made good money over the weekend, unfortunately, he'd want to go and gamble it. And so I was sent with my father, like the sort of the nanny, to make sure he didn't gamble too much. And he taught me to read marked cards. So I would sit stand in the corner and I would signal to my father what everyone had in their hand. So a quite an eclectic, different childhood. <laughs> to and say the most least. Most people would imagine, to say the least. Um, well, I just wondered, you know, what impact do you think that sense of insecurity, uh, the fragility of existence in terms of money and the responsibility uh, that mm. was thrust on your shoulders at such a, a young age, what impact that had on you? And were you ever resentful of the fact that you had to be the grown-up? I think I went at the time. No, I wasn't. It was, just, and you know what? A lot of a lot of people right now will identify with what I'm saying, and you just survive it. Mm. There's no time to feel resentful and angry. You just survive it, and you get yourself through. And you say to yourself, "I'm never." And I used to say as a child, "I am going to build my life, and I am going to. I, I'm not going to live like this for the rest of my life." I was determined about it. And also, I looked always at the positives and what I could do. And I knew from the age of 
11, 12. I mean, it was up to me to put food on our table. But we lived in a community of people that looked after each other as well. It wasn't just me on my own. Mm. Um, and my mum had an awful breakdown when I was about 11. And that's when it really fell on my shoulders to look after everything. And I did. But it's funny, if, if I look back in my life now, I wouldn't change anything. Isn't that a strange thing to say? I wouldn't because it made me who I am. And to to this day, even now, I always have to have three meals in our fridge in yeah. case something goes wrong. I've never gambled. I've never been overdrawn in any bank account I've ever had in my life. I've always lived within my means. And I, I, I had this, this feeling of responsibility. Money only gives you choice. And that's all it does. So I've never been governed by it. But I know that without it, your life is very different. So I absolutely knew sometimes what it was to go to bed and I'd had something to eat, but it wasn't, it didn't fill me up. You've, you've said that, that dreams uh, rescued you, which I thought was mm. incredibly poignant. I mean, you say you don't regret any of it, you wouldn't change it. And I think that's partly because, um, just to emphasize the fact that you felt very loved uh, by your parents, despite yes. the, the, the circumstances. And I think love at that early age is, is, is kind of nourishment enough in some ways. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't wish that experience on, on other children, but, but I you know, I think that that's a kind of defining aspect of your childhood, isn't it? Mm. But anyway, you, you said, I mean, like I said, I could talk to you all day. But it's fascinating. Like, there's so many things I want to talk about. Countess Lubati. And so <laughs> tell me about, the, wonderful. Tell me about yeah. the dreams that, that, that rescued you. You know, did you have ambitions or, or was survival the thing? Well, I, I think when I look at this, and I think this is really relevant right now in, in our moment in time in, in this country, is... The reason I was happy, the reason I didn't feel scared is I knew how to think with my entrepreneurial head. So I never felt as though I wasn't part in some sort of part in control. And I think that is, and I think the respect of creativity was the, was the dreams and being able to dream and being able to find laughter and fun and fulfillment you know and at school I was horrendous I didn't I got zero qualifications I had nothing nothing and of course I was dyslexic and I was struggling but no one saw it at school so on paper I shouldn't ever be where I was but my dreams but it, it's all right to dream but if you don't have determination and that spirit mm. to work hard your dreams just end up as dreams but so I also had the toolbox of entrepreneurialism. So I knew how to build something. I knew how to create and I knew how to sell it. So that was my saving grace. And that came from both of my parents. You launched, um, you launched your first uh, business from the kitchen table uh, into the world. Uh, I heard you describing the point at which uh, your husband said, that's it. You've got to get a shop. Enough's enough. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners <laughs> what, that, what that watershed that was, moment was? Yeah, it was almost divorce. Actually, it was. It was very close to that. Well, I, we'd started this uh, really tiny business. I rented a small flat in London. Uh, I only had just enough for the first month's rent. No furniture, no curtains, and our bed was a piece of blue foam from Homebase that we would roll out every night. And I had uh, probably about 500 to 1,000 face clients that I'd built from nothing. 
And when they would come, they, I would give them a little bottle of body lotion or bath oil and to say thank you for coming. And that side of the business, that's where the fragrance side really started. And one lady one day bought 100 bottles. But that particular evening, Gary was – so Gary is my husband, my best friend, and my business partner. Uh, but he was a building surveyor for a big contraction company uh, many years ago. And he came in from work one day. He was so tired. It was hot. And he went to make himself a piece of toast because he was hungry. And he put what he thought was honey, but it wasn't. It was the face mask for the next day on his toast. So he spat that out. Uh, he then made himself a coffee. And then bubbles come all over the top of the uh, coffee mug. And he looked at me and he said, that's it. He said, I can't carry on like this, Joe. We're going to end in divorce. I'm going to have a shower. And I thought, oh, no, I just filled it with seashells and scenting them with lavender. <laughs> and I heard him really shout at me. So then he came back and he said, that's it. We have to get shot. We can't, I can't go, live like this anymore. I feel like I never stop working and you never stop working. And so I was very quiet for 48 hours and thinking about it. And, um, yeah, our first little shot was in Wharton Street. And to the day that we opened that door, um, five years on, we sold it to the biggest beauty corporation in the world. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Joe, you sort of punctuated beautifully our um, conversation there by talking about um, setting up that shop and five years later to the day selling it for many millions of pounds. You sold it in the 1990s to Estee Lauder. Um, and you say that that's when you learned the most about yourself. And, and one of the reasons you left was due to your cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that period because you were 38 years old with a young son at the time and, and you must have felt like you were on top of the world at one moment as you sold the company, you know, and, and achieved, I imagine, you know, your dreams. But at the other end of the scale had this devastating terminal diagnosis. Yeah, it was, it, that was a very tough day to, to say. But life throws you curveballs all the time and it's how you catch them, how you miss them. 
um, or how you, you know, you soften the blow. And my curveball was being diagnosed. I, I suddenly felt I was 38 years old. I'd had Josh. Um, I'd suffered hyperemesis, so I was seven stone two when I had my son. And um, the minute I had him, I stopped being sick for nine, you know, nine months. I'd really thrown up literally every single hour of every single day. And was there a connection? Don't know. But I was very tired. And I went, I suddenly one morning, I was in America, and I found a lump at the side of my breast. And I thought, oh, I, you know, I haven't felt that before. It wasn't painful. I'll go and get it checked. And within a few days, I was being scanned. And that night, I was told that they could see it was a very aggressive form of breast cancer. And I probably probably had about nine months to live and I was 38 years old and all I could think about at that point was I didn't care about business or anything I cared and I thought oh god I'll never see my son grow up grow, go to school go to university have his first girlfriend it's it, you know this is it and then I thought poor Gary you know has got to shoulder this and um, the amazing late incredible Evelyn Lauder helped me find a doctor and I was determined that I wouldn't die, that I would do anything I could to fight it, and I would come out the other end. And um, I went to New York, and I, I was one of the first women to take this chemotherapy uh, in small doses. And I was treated by a doctor called Dr. Larry Norton, who is one of the most, he's now one of my dearest friends in the world. Um, but he saved my life as, along with millions of other women in this world today. So I was very lucky to be in that position. Um, but my diagnosis got, I went from a lumpectomy to them discovering it elsewhere. So I had to have a mastectomy. I had to go through all of that and then 18 months of chemo every five to six days, which was grueling. And during, during that time, I lost my sense of smell, lost my identity. But I had still had this incredible fight in me, this purpose. And I, I can remember listening to Queen, Don't Stop Me Now. That's my song of my <laughs> life, that one. And I used to listen to it and, you know, Don't Stop Me Now because I'm having a good time. And I, and I was determined in my life that I would live and stand in those footprints of life again, where life wouldn't stop me doing what I wanted to do. And, um, yeah. And you got, were got me through. Yeah, I mean, time. it's the most remarkable story of determination. I wondered emotionally how it felt. You managed to beat it. Um, you're completely clear now, as I understand it. And and you were able yes. to walk your son through the university <laughs> gates. And the contrast oh. between that sense of despair that that you weren't going to be there to watch him grow up, and then to see him grow up, and you know, accompany him on that amazing day. Mm. How did that feel? That always gets me that that bit because I get, he's just come home at the moment he's at home. That day where we walked him through the gates of his first university with tugging his little bag, um, smelling of uh, he had he had ebony wood on that I did for Zara and I could smell him leaving home and going. Ouch! And I just yeah, it was I cried for about two months, slept in his bed for for a month and missed him. Um, and I just felt, I still feel this though. I feel I am so lucky to be alive. I am so lucky to be married still to the man I truly love. I am so, I am so blessed. Every day I wake up and I wake up now with a, this, I feel I'm smiling as I wake up and it's not that life's perfect, far from it. 
far from it. But it's that attitude of life every day. There is the opportunity of something, something good. You've just got to find it. Yeah. You've just got to find it and make it work. Um, and I'm, I mean, listen, I've suffered with anxiety. I've gone through all of those things. I've had really tough times and still, but there, I try and keep it to the day. And if I want a good cry, I'll have a good cry. You know, it's being real with yourself. You can't, you, I can't pretend that those things didn't happen to me in my upbringing, but I choose to turn them around for, for positivity rather than negativity. Do you think and that there's a lesson there? We, we live in a society now where, you know, everyone has a, a sort of a misery memoir in them almost. Um, and they're not always, you know, the, the culmination isn't always um, this forward thinking um, positivity that you're exuding. Uh, do, do you think that, that maybe there's a lesson in, in just people being more more resilient, perhaps? I think I think passion, resilience, and creativity are the three vital ingredients to a good, strong, happy life. The you know the passion to find what you're good at. Um, I mean, you and I have both found our jewel, haven't we? We 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 found the something in our life that we're able to do, and it makes us happy. That resilience, you know, resilience is is not always about fight. Resilience is often sometimes standing your ground and holding the ground that you own and who you are. Mm. And then that appreciation of our bank account of creativity. I know I know that sounds sort of like like three um, sentences I've said many, many times. And I have. I really have. Because when you're creative, your imagination kicks in. Then you're inspired. And the whole thing starts to lift you um, out of that doom and gloom. And, you know, I'm a great believer of getting, you know, you're responsible for your own life. You're responsible for your own happiness. And sometimes you do have to stand up taller and you do have to fake a smile sometimes. Mm. Um, And you do have to sort of, but there is always someone much worse off than you. And there's always somebody much better off than you. Yeah, that's the nature of life, isn't it? That's the nature of life. You you weren't able to um, start another business for, I think, five years after you sold to Estee Lauder, but also, as we've established, you probably weren't in a a particularly fit state to do that. But how how did a a stingray on a beach (laughs) while you're on holiday uh, influence your return to the fragrance world? Um, Well, that five-year lockout, rightly so, I'd been paid a, a lot of money for a business and but I, there was still this this girl that you know kept three meals in a fridge. I, I still wanted to work. I feel work gives me purpose every single day. And those five years, that's when I got severe anxiety. That's when I didn't want to wake up in the morning. I couldn't I couldn't see through this fog. Um, and it was at that time that I became the most unhappy that I've ever been in my life. Funny, you would think cancer would have done that, wouldn't you? But it didn't. It was the disassociation from something I, I loved every single day. So those five years were really, really, really tough. And when I got to the end and it was on that last day at the end, I just said, I have, I have to try again. I have to try again. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily know that, you know, why I needed to start again. Did I need the money? No, I didn't, but I needed the purpose and I needed something, you know, that I focused on. So um, I was going through a particularly very, very dark anxiety time where I was physically manifesting, you know, like numb face. I could, I, my, my, I ha- 
walked with a limp for some reason. It was it was it was bizarre. And we went on holiday, went to the Turks and Caicos in Parakee. And I was walking one morning and every morning I would get up and go for a walk and just try and clear my head. And why couldn't I create again? Why couldn't I be Joe again? I lost myself. And I was walking down the beach one morning and I remember exactly what I was wearing. I can see all of it. And a baby stingray was swimming by the side of me. And as I walked down the beach, the stingray kind of swam by the side of me and followed me all the way down. And I suddenly realized that I didn't own creativity. Creativity just wanted to mimic the stories of life for me. And I looked up and I created this fragrance called Pomelo, which is is the beach fragrance for the world. I'm, that, that's one of my missions, by the way. I want to create Pomelo and put Pomelo in every single beach around the world before I go off to meet my maker. That's my big, big dream. Joe, aside from fragrance, I know that another big passion of yours is charity work. You're quite the philanthropist. Um, tell me a little bit about your project with Magic Breakfast. Uh, so this is this is a heartbeat for me, and I remember as a child uh, being hungry and being at school and not being able to to function properly. Magic Breakfast, in, in one sentence, is this amazing charity that I will be involved with for our family for the rest of our lives, ensuring that no child in this country ever goes to school and is hungry or can't get to school because they're hungry and they can't learn, that every child is owed that by us. It's not charity. It's called humanity and responsibility. And we have to, in this country, we can solve this right now, right today, 21 pence to feed a child with breakfast to ensure their future and their, and their sense that this country values them as a generation. And I guess there were times in your life when that would have made a big difference. I, I managed to struggle through because I had community. Um, if we didn't have breakfast, somebody else would give it to us. But there are lots of people in this country that don't have community. And they, we can solve this. This can be solved. And Magic Breakfast was a charity I got involved with uh, many years ago now and continue to be involved with. Um, and we have to make sure, and we have to hold the government to account. It's not about having breakfast or lunch. These kids need both. But it starts with breakfast. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my program every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time.